Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Amen. Well, good morning to you. It is always a pleasure and a privilege to be here with you at City on a Hill Community Church. And uh, thanks, James. I, I was uh, really touched and moved by the prayer for the children and... Uh, just want to say amen to all that. And uh, my four-year-old is starting her first day of pre-K tomorrow. And so uh, I took that uh, prayer over Katie, too, and uh, look forward to that. We'll be praying for our children at my own church tonight, where I'm the pastor Hello. in Jamaica, Queens. And uh, if you think about us and uh, have a chance to pray for us, we're um, having some uh, exciting new things happening in the fall at our church, too. We'll be moving to two services come September 22nd because we've outgrown our, our small space. So it's sort of one of those good problems to have. And the solution we feel like the Lord led us to is to go to two services. It'll also allow parents to get sort of in and out a little earlier, a 415 service and a 6 o'clock service. I just say that so that if you um, uh, are at the end of your prayer time, you've run out of things to pray, but you're like, I really want something else to pray for. Uh, maybe um, offer one up uh, for us to your brothers and sisters in Queens at New Hope Church. And uh, we love you. Uh, we were blessed to have James a few weeks ago come and break open God's word for our people. And they were blessed. They always say, hey, man, that guy, Lechie, get him, get him back. Well, I mean, no offense, Tom, but like bring him back more. And uh, so it's always good to see. You. Thanks, James, for doing that. Uh, when I was here a few weeks ago, uh, I uh, began something called Big Faith. And I called it a new series, August 25th, September. I didn't know how to, that, that's what I'm doing at my church. And I didn't know how to remove that. So I just left it up. It's a new series at New Hope. Here, it's sort of an old series. And uh, we are in uh, part three, but uh, I like that graphic, big faith, because in the center is this idea of big faith, and there are things that spin off of that, things that God uses to give us big faith. And so you may remember that I said uh, about that Roman centurion who came to Jesus that he had big faith, and Jesus wasn't amazed by the centurion's Bible knowledge. Jesus, it says, was amazed, and it, it's hard to amaze Jesus because he's, you know, the Lord, and, but he was surprised. One time in the Bible, we see Jesus amazed by something. One time we see him uh, astonished, and it wasn't by the centurion's Bible knowledge. It wasn't by his good behavior. It wasn't by the, the centurion's, you know, synagogue attendance or church attendance. He had never darkened the doors of a religious institution. What amazed him was his faith. And then James followed that up with the story of Joshua and Caleb, their faith. To see the promised land and to see what God could do, not just what humans could do. And today I want to talk, look at something that, that God uses to build our faith that may make us a little uncomfortable when we think about it, when we consider it. But God uses it nonetheless to give us big faith. Now before I do, let me say this about big faith. Uh, I had you pray, if you were here last month, I had you pray, God give me big faith. But then I got to thinking about it. Theoretically, everybody in here, everybody in this whole church, now you may be a regular, you may be here, this, this is your place, like you're here every single week, like you have your seat, and when you come in and somebody's in your seat, it's like, what, 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 like, what, I don't, like, I don't even know if I can worship, I'm over here, like I, I'm thrown up, right? That's how much you've been here, so you get all this, but it may be that you're here for the very first time, and now you're suddenly thinking like, did I take somebody's seat, right? No, 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 don't sweat it, man, it's God's seat, right? So, no, now here's the thing. If you're here and you're new to all this, that may surprise you. That you have big faith. You have tremendous faith. You have wholehearted faith. Everybody in here. He said, man, you don't even know that. You don't know me. Yes, you do. You have big faith. Everybody driving right up and down Middle Country Road right now. They've got big faith. Every one of them. Big faith. There are people that are sleeping in, hungover from the club last night, 
And you know what they're doing? They got big, humongous faith. The issue for a preacher is not to get people to gin up some you know, faith, to sort of create, muster up faith. The fact is simply this. You've already got big faith. The question is, in whom or in what is your faith? It's already in something. You are already leaning heavily into something. You are already saying, this is what can save. And it's very simple truth. Whatever that thing is, if it's not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, anything else, the Bible says idolatry. See? Because you're leaning, you're putting your faith in something that's not God. That's a a quick word about idolatry. I do not worry. I do not stress when I talk about idolatry that you struggle with idolatry the way the people in the Old Testament struggled with idolatry. That is not a fear for me. I mean, I haven't talked this over with the pastors, but I don't think that in any of you, it's a great temptation right after church to be like, hey, bro, come here. Come here. Uh, I know that we were at church today, but uh, I just got this brand new statue over at my house. It's a golden Buddha and... Uh, Right after church, why don't you come over before the game? We'll sneak in a couple quick bows. It's going to be hot. Right? Like, that does not worry me. Rub his belly. Like, I don't, I don't worry about that. Right? And so a lot of people dismiss the whole concept of idolatry because they're imagining bowing down to these statues. And then the preacher says, no, 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 no. An idol is not just a statue. An idol is anything that comes before God. And a lot of people go, oh, well, okay. Well, I put a few things before God. But, you know, I don't love anything more than I love God. And so let me hit you with a third definition. Let me look at, look at idolatry from this way. It's not, don't ask yourself, what is it that I'm putting ahead? Like, why, why would, for example, money or power, why would relations, why would they become idols? Okay? Why? How does money get to be an idol? You think, well, because somebody just loves money more than they love God. I I don't know that that's a helpful, descriptive way to look at idols. I don't imagine somebody just like fanning piles of $100 bills, smelling them and like rolling around in them. And I love money so much more than God. No, 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 no. The reason money is an idol is because an idol is not just something you put ahead of God. An idol is what you trust to save you. You're saying, you're my savior. And that's how money gets to be an idol. Because you know what, man? When your kid was sick and needed needed medicine, money, you were there for me. So you're a good savior, money. I've learned I can trust you. When I can't trust anything else, there's a lot of people that hate on me and that tear me down. But what they don't know is I got a fat bank account. And money gave me that security. That You know what? Maybe I don't need all these people as much as I thought. Money, you were there for me. When I had to put food on my table, it was you, money, that was there for me. My big dream was to get a job, to get a big salary. And money, you were there. When I couldn't count on anybody else, I could always count on you, money. And what happens? Money becomes a God, becomes a Savior. Why? Because we look at money as being somehow mighty to save. That's where we get to idolatry. There's something in us that clicks. There's a visceral reaction that goes, that's our security. We begin to lean on that. And it's usually, I picked on money because it's usually something like that, something tangible. Uh, let's do a little thought experiment here. Bear with me. You don't, you don't have to play along, but I hope, I hope you will. You'll get more out of it if you, you, know, if you do. Close your eyes. Quickly ponder your financial situation. Whatever it is, imagine right now, I snap my fingers, and you are debt-free and have 300 grand sitting untouched in a savings account as an emergency fund. Okay, yeah, now open your eyes. Right, yeah. Now, some of you, you had a visceral reaction to that thought. 
And there's something that happened. Some little gland inside of you gave a squirt of some chemical into, that made you go, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm, right? I, don't, I can't explain it, but something happened. Now, scientists say there is a chemical that goes in called chillaxadrin. I made that up. It's a, there, like, please don't Google. Maybe I need chillaxadrin sub, uh, supplements. That's why I'm so stressed. My body's not producing enough chillaxadrin. But seriously, some sort of chillaxadrin goes into our system and we're like, oh, yeah, okay? Now, some of you, that just happened. When I say your money situation is all set and you go, oh, all right. But for some of you, you're going, okay, that's silly. And that's just because I didn't pick your potential savior. That's all. Like for you, it would have been close your eyes and um, all the people in your world that have those relationship nightmares, they all suddenly like you. And you would have gone, oh, man. I'm set, right? Why? Because you're leaning into, oh, that mighty Savior called approval. See, and I'm, oh, approval, you're there for me when nobody else is. Like, I can get, I know that people love me. I know that I'm liked, and suddenly I get that approval. Uh, if, if you're a single person who desperately uh, longs to be married, you've not been given the gift of singleness, and you're sweating, is it ever going to happen? And I tell you, close your eyes, it's going to happen. And you're going to find that spouse of your dreams. You're going to find the one you're going to be happily married. You would have gone, ah, oh, right? Because you're leaning in. I didn't say you're an idolater. I said, that's your temptation. That's your potential counterfeit God, okay? Uh, you, for some of you like me who are uh, parents trying to figure out, hey, how did this happen? I, just, I had a baby. Now she's in school. Like what, right? And you're trying to figure this stuff out. And everybody you know looks like such good parents. But you realize none of us know what we're doing. We're just doing the best we can trying to figure this out. If, if I close your eyes and say, your children turn out okay, you'd go, oh. And for some of you who have health problems, if I said, hey, snap my fingers, in 10 years, I can guarantee you, you still have great health. You're at the peak of health. You go, oh, that's the thing that produces that, right? You are not, I'll say it again, you are not necessarily an idolater if you like the thought of your kids turning out okay and you having plenty of money in the bank. I'm not saying that. Who wouldn't want that? I want all these things. Bring them on, okay? You're not necessarily an idolater for that. But big faith is when I cease to get that burst of chillaxadrin from that stuff. Big faith is when I cease to lean in that. And you know what makes me say, ah, you know what makes me say yes? Is when somebody says Psalm 46.1, our God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And I go, yes. That's the thing that makes me viscerally react. That's the thing. When somebody says, hey, God is with you, I go, oh, then it's going to be okay. Why? Because little by little, I'm not leaning in all these things. I'm leaning on God. That's big faith. That's what I want. That's what you want too. I want to be so close with God that these counterfeit gods lose their appeal and that I immediately recognize them for the lousy saviors that they are because everybody in here knows that. Even when I was saying, money, you were there for me. Money, you saved me. Everybody knows money is a lousy savior, isn't it? Money is a great servant, but a terrible master. Like money can't save. All it takes is one economic collapse, one job loss, and we immediately, what? these are terrible saviors. They were never good saviors in the first place, right? And so we know this, and we don't want to lean on them. But how? How do I transfer? How do I get big faith? One way is to pray to God, God, give me big faith, and you've done that. 
If you were here uh, last month, you prayed that. God, give me big faith. Okay, and I think there are other things you can do, like train in the spiritual disciplines. Perhaps James will be talking uh, more about that. If you uh, set that up for you, if you want to go that route. Uh, 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 right? And then you can train for it. <clears throat> but a lot of times, it may go like this. And this is the focus for today. Okay, God, we pray. Uh, give me big faith. I want faith in you. Don't want to be leaning on this stuff for my sort of visceral reaction to peace and all that stuff. Well, I want to be leaning completely on you. And God says, you sure? Yeah, why? Yeah, I don't want to lean on this stuff anymore. These crutches and all this stuff, it's lousy saviors, they're counterfeit gods. Whether it's approval or money or beauty or popularity or health, whatever, I don't want that anymore. I want to lean completely on you. And God says, you sure? Yeah, why, why would I not be sure? I mean, I totally want faith in you. I don't want this stuff. And so God says, now you're sure. So you want to rest completely in me. Yeah. And how many of you know where I'm going with the, with the yeah. And so he say, uh, yes, Lord, take it. Take my life. Take all of me. And what will God begin to do? He begins to mess with all my stuff. He begins to start little by little wiping out my, my, my God that I was leaning on. And I go, what, what, what are you doing? I just asked for big faith. I didn't ask you to mess with my money. Right? I just asked for big faith. I didn't ask for trouble. I didn't ask for suffering. And we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just wanted big faith. I didn't mean for you to start messing with my life. I'm leaning into this thing, and I look at God like, what are you doing? When he, and why wouldn't he, begins pulling away that very thing that's pulling me away from him. I begin to even resent him for it when all he's doing is answering my prayer for big faith. Sometimes training for big faith can only take us so far. We have to go through, and here we are today, affliction, suffering. That's why I started by saying, hey, the topic may not be all that uh, welcome, um, but a loving God will use suffering in a person's life for the glory of God in the long term. Maybe it doesn't feel that way in the moment, but for the long-term good of the person. Uh, The pencils that you gave out to children, awesome, by the way, uh, were based on a song by Jason Gray. Jason Gray once told me this story, uh, that uh, he uh, had a mentor who uh, he admired beyond all others. And this man was a, a great influence in his life. He was a, uh, sort of like a uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, like a, like a, he, was, he was the Jedi master of Christianity. And this guy, like, no matter what came his way, he handled it with such grace. People w- would hate on him, and he would r- continually, you know people like this? Continually, continually, continually rise above. Just, they always just seem to rise above. They're always on the moral high ground. They always just, eh, you know, let the pigs roll around in the mud and fight it out. They seem to sort of rise above all that. And, 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 and the affliction and the stuff that came out, nothing rocked him. He was just steady as a rock, spiritually consistent. And Jason Gray, in this sort of funny moment, he, he asked him one time because something had come up right then and he was sort of privy to it and he watched it. And he stops there at dinner and he stops the guy and he asks his spiritual mentor this question. I love it. He goes, okay, okay, okay. How do I be you? You ever felt that way with some spiritual hero that you knew? You just said, you know what? I, forget all the games. I want to know, seriously, how do I be you? That's how much I, 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 I want what you have. How do I be you? Just sort of ha, 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 joking. The mentor wasn't joking at all. And he answered him with one word. And he looked at him, and Jason Gray was sort of one of those funny, off-the-cuff kind of questions. How do I be you? And the guy answered him with just one word, and he was dead serious. He looked at Jason Gray, and he answered him, pain. To which Jason said, well, maybe I'll just be you light, you know? (laughs) I don't really have to be you after all. But what he said, he never forgot. 
His point was simple, wasn't it? He did more in one word than I'm trying to do with this whole sermon. Like if you sort of like, man, that sermon was kind of long, convoluted. Just remember that story because that's what I'm trying to say. There are some things where spiritual disciplines, you, you're praying a lot, you're praying a lot. That will get you so far, okay? And, and you're, you're having quiet times, your scripture memory and your fasting. Those spiritual disciplines you're giving as a percentage giver, as a spiritual discipline under the Lord, awesome. That will get you so far, and that's good. You've got to keep doing that. Um, but there are some things that, uh, some lessons that are only learned as a loving God brings us through pain. Big faith is what we want, but that doesn't mean it's going to come easily or cheap. Our text today is from a man who knew suffering firsthand all too well, and I believe that it is his pain that has brought comfort to others. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul, and I want you to turn to his letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll have some of the verses up here on the screen, but not the ones I'm using to set it up. So turn there if you have a Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Otherwise, look off of uh, your neighbor who has one. Uh, while you're turning there, a little bit of background. Paul's been writing letters and visiting this church that he planted in Corinth, okay? Uh, this is actually, it's funny, we call it 2 Corinthians. It's actually Paul's fourth letter to the church at Corinth, right? So there's this initial letter that is in 1 Corinthians um, that Paul sort of references. He says, you know, my first letter. So we assume that's like letter one. There may be more. But then the second letter that we think he wrote is what we call 1 Corinthians. Then there's this severe, tearful letter. And who knows what was in that that was like his third letter. And the fourth is, is this what we have here, 2 Corinthians. These are what the Holy Spirit guided the writers of scriptures to be in our canon and uh, in the Holy Bible. And so um, uh, uh, the Bible uh, doesn't contain like every good thing that was ever written by every saint that lived. The Bible contains what God wants us to have as the word of God. And so we call it 2 Corinthians. But the, the point is there's been some um, like uh, letter writing back and forth and some, some visiting. And uh, Paul has been through something. When he gets to 2 Corinthians, here's the point. Paul's been through something that has deeply and profoundly changed him. Philippians, his tone is one of great joy. Galatians, his tone is one of stern anger. 2 Corinthians is this, like, at least for the first chapter, you look deeply into the life of Paul, and this is like raw, wound, sorrow. Uh, this, is, this is the heart of someone who's been through some pain. Several commentators point this out, that, that we're getting sort of an inside. Paul is not always biographical in his writings, but here we're seeing deep inside the heart of Paul. In the midst of all this, I want you to hear, in the midst of all this pain, listen to what his focus is on. How many times, as I set up verse 8, we're going to be in verse 8, but, 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 but just let's build up to it from verse 3. And here's how we'll do it. Listen to how many times you hear the word comfort. You ready? He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Already we've heard comfort a lot. And very simply, right off the bat, hey, there's a reason for suffering you've probably thought of. I have too. Part of the reason you're going through what you're going through is so that you will be able to comfort others who are going through the same thing. During the bombings in World War II, the Queen Mother, who was always saying these pithy and witty things throughout her life, one of her favorite quotes when the bombings were happening in World War II over, uh, over London, uh, she would repeatedly go to the East End, which took the brunt of the bombings. They took the worst part. And over and over she would go into the East End. But she says it wasn't until after a, 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 a bomb took out a big chunk of Buckingham Palace... Okay, the bombs came to her house, and this was her quote. Well, at last I can look the East End in the face. 
Because she had been there. Her comfort meant something to those people. She said, I've been there. And so the comfort I receive, I'm giving to you. I can tell you there's a light at the end of this tunnel. Here's what you've been through. I've been there too. I'll help you. That didn't come, like, you know, that didn't come from psychiatrists. They, they came from the Bible. That came from God. That's for a reason that God has allowed you to go through some stuff so that you may share that comfort that you've received. So he goes on, verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Look, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in the sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Everybody who goes through these sufferings also has access to the great comfort of God. And he's saying because of your prayers and because of the body of Christ, we are united in some sense. We're going through this together. He says somewhere else that when one part of the body suffers, we all hurt. When one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice. We're in this thing together. And so what's happening to me is only going to bring comfort for you. So it's enough to say that comfort's on his mind. Actually, it's more than to say comfort's on his mind. It's more like uh, comfort is an obsession here to get across to his people. So what happened? Like, what happened between these letters? I read one commentary that said it's almost like you see your friend from far away, and you notice he doesn't see you, but you notice he walks into a house confidently and joyously going into a house. A few minutes later, he comes out, and he's limping, and his head's all beaten in, and there's blood trickling down his arm. And you go, I don't know what happened in that house, but something, right? Something went down. Something has happened. And he says that, that, that we don't know what it is where Paul is saying, there's been this tremendous affliction, and I'm here to tell you that God has helped me, that he has uh, 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 provided me for some comfort. We're not real, really sure what happened, but something happened. And the rest of the book never exactly tells us what it is. You remember in, um, uh, when he talks about uh, his thorn in the flesh. To this day, we don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. And when he talks about this affliction, we don't know. We know it was something terrible, and we're about to learn it's something that happened in the province of Asia which could include modern-day Ephesus, you know, modern-day Turkey. Okay, so we get some geographical little clues. And it was probably something to do with Paul aligning himself with Jesus Christ and therefore earning the hatred of those who hate Christ. So we can assume it was probably some sort of persecution. And, and, and now's as good a time as any to point out uh, some causes of suffering. Yes, sometimes we are suffering because we are being persecuted by uh, others who hate Christ, and because of our stand for Jesus Christ, we're experiencing affliction and persecution. <clears throat> Not all suffering comes from that. Some suffering, a lot of this has been the suffering in my life, comes because I have made foolish and sinful decisions that are stupid. Right? And I pay the price of those decisions, and I go, I am suffering, and have no one to blame but myself. And sometimes suffering comes because you made a stupid, a foolish, or a sinful decision, and you have no one to blame but yourself. And that is a legitimate cause of suffering. It's worth putting out there. Other times, you are suffering because of the stupid, painful, and foolish decision of someone else. And that we live in a fallen world. And I, I, I was not going to talk about Syria. I really wasn't. Like I said, whatever I do, I'm not going to bring up Syria. But if I hear one more time that the, the, that the solution of all the ills in society is we just have to educate people to be more tolerant, to be more loving. I'm enough already. It's Jesus, man. Until you deal with the cancer of evil and sinfulness, how do you think that the education that produced the world we have now is going to help? we got to have an overhaul. And the only thing that can do that is Jesus. We don't just need to be tinkered with. we got to be scrapped and resurrected. That's all. That, that, that's all. That's all. 
It's like, seriously, your hope is in human goodness? Here's what humans do. We gas each other with chemical weapons. That's pretty much what we're good at. We figure out ways to destroy other people. I, don't, I, I wouldn't want to be the president for a billion dollars. Two billion, we'll talk. But I, I'm, no, I'm just kidding. I, I, my point is, I don't want to be in his shoes. I don't want to be in Congress's shoes. I, I hate this. But the ant, radical evil. And the church, this, like every time I watch the news, I go, how is everybody in the world not a Christian? Seriously. Christianity has a theological framework where you watch that stuff and Christianity goes, yep, yep. Everybody else goes, oh, how could this happen? Ignore this and grab this fact. And they sort of mishmash and put together something, secular humanism. And it's it's preposterous. Christianity looks at that and goes, "Uh, yeah, there is radical evil in the world. We've been here, Romans 3. Who's with me, right? Uh, uh, Yeah, humans should be treated with love and respect. Okay, Genesis 1. Christianity's like, yeah, yeah, we've been here. Christianity offers a theological framework that is robust enough to deal with the 6 o'clock news. Nothing else does. And if you can atone for sins through good deeds, whether it's Islam or, or a noble path of Hindu, then you have not taken sin seriously enough. The Bible does. Um, so sometimes suffering happens because of human sinfulness. That's all I wanted. That's all I was really trying to say. About <laughs> like, really, I'm like, I'm not going to talk about Syria. Uh, sometimes uh, that, that, that's another cause. But then here's the thing. We try to, oh, it's so good when you can pin the blame for suffering. That's like, for some reason, that is so comforting to people. Well, I know there's a reason. And the reason is, like, you. You have caused my suffering, or whatever, you know, or me. And that is so comforting to people. Here's what's very disturbing to people, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Sometimes you won't be able to find the blame for suffering. Sometimes you'll look around and go, what, what, what is the deal here? Does it rain on the just and the unjust? And you'll read in the Bible, oh, man, it does, right? <laughs> yes, right? I wish there was a way we could figure out who's who. Uh, and uh, the blind man in John 9 ended this discussion forever. Though somehow it still surfaces. But uh, uh, Jesus, which man sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus said neither this man nor his parents sinned. This was done so the work of God could be displayed in his life. Now, that's not a real helpful answer, but it doesn't mean it's not true. It's true. So when somebody comes to you and says, I cannot find a reason for this, you tell me, why is this suffering? Who's to blame? Sometimes suffering happens, brother. Sometimes suffering happens, sister, so that the work of God could be displayed in your life. Well, that's not helpful. I know. I, but it's, it doesn't mean it's not true. Sometimes it happens. So the work of God could be displayed in our life. Now, whichever of those you're dealing with, here's the hope. Because if, if you're sitting here going, yes, I'm dealing with righteous persecution. I'm sharing my faith and I'm being persecuted. Then this sermon's going to be easy. But it was already easy for you. You're obviously a saint. You get persecuted for righteousness. You're the man. But for the rest of us who are suffering because of stupid or foolish decisions, here's some hope. You ready for this? Uh, 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 it's actually not as important why you're suffering. Let's talk about what God can do with your suffering. Okay? Yes, it is important. It, it is important to analyze and to think about that to some degree. That's fine. But let's talk about what God does, what he can do with and in your suffering. In this case, Paul points out he's been faithful to the work. And that's why I say I don't think that he's suffering because of some foolish or, or sinful decision. Because he says a few verses later, he's been faithful to the word. He talks about this. Um, and that, as I said, can be one of the most frustrating times to suffer. But sometimes God allows this suffering uh, so that God could be displayed in our life. So let's pick up verse 8. I want to focus on 8 and 9 today, and, so, uh, and then we'll be done. So here we go. Uh, verse 8. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction that took place in the province of Asia. Now here's what I say. It's sort of mysterious. I don't know what it is. Presumably, uh, either Titus sent word. Somehow they knew 
but the province of Asia includes Ephesus. Paul was there. We don't know what this affliction was. I, I, a lot of, I, I personally believe, others believe that, um, uh, see, Paul was preaching in Ephesus and they started this riot. Ba- basically, he's, his message was that uh, God is the only God and Jesus, you know, here on earth was the Messiah. And that really upset people who were making money off the temple to Artemis. You can imagine why. Because suddenly, wait a minute, why are we paying all this money to Artemis? He's like a false god. If the real god's over here and he tends to heal, like, you know, for free, uh, (laughs) I'd rather be in relationship. And then people are turning. And the silversmiths and all those who are making little idols, they're being put out of business. So they incite this riot. And there's this mob. And who knows what affliction may have come after that. So I think it's related to that scene. I mean, your city is in a mob, uh, whipped up in a frenzy, and they don't even know why. I think that would lead to future affliction at the very least, lawsuits, and, you know, they even talk about, look, if you guys want to do something, the courts are in session, go haul him in. You know, that, that kind of talk is in there in Acts 19. But the point is, Luke doesn't tell us in the book of Acts, and so we don't know, but some affliction that took place in Asia. And I will leave for just a moment the irony that the verse is about Paul not wanting us to be unaware, and we are totally unaware of what it was. Uh, the um, word I want to point out, though, what I do want to focus in is this word, affliction. Uh, Of all the words he could have used, affliction. This is an important and deliberate choice of words. If he had said bodily harm or physical suffering, that would be one thing. But he says affliction. And as John Calvin points out, the word afflicted refers not merely to outward misery, but to that of his, here we go, mind. And it's already been talked about today, but these are Calvin's words, not mine. The person's mind is pressed down with anxiety from a feeling of misery. This is suffering when you dread going into work tomorrow morning. This is affliction. This is the kind of suffering where you're going through something where, yeah, it's harm. You may be in harm's way, but you carry it over. You don't sleep at night. You are afflicted. This This is holistic suffering when we talk about affliction. Not just a little uh, part of who you are. Affecting his whole mind. And then he, he goes on to say this. So that we were completely overwhelmed. The image here is of a boat taking on so much water that it begins to sink. Completely overwhelmed. Paul says, look, it got to a point where it was all just too much. And then to drive the point home, because we, Paul, come on, seriously, too much for you? Paul, you're the man. You were like, there's nobody closer. I mean, you are writing scripture. You know, we're all like, oh, do you understand the book of Romans? Paul's, you wrote the book of Romans, Right. And so he's saying, how could you say you're completely overwhelmed? Surely we misunderstood you. No, no, no. He drives it home. No. Beyond our strength. Like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're saying you're completely overwhelmed. This is Paul? Beyond your strength? I have always heard. But Paul, I've always heard. Isn't it somewhere in the Bible that God will never give me more than I can handle? This verse says that God will give us more than we can handle. So surely I have misunderstood that. And Paul says, well, just in case you did, so that we even despaired of life. (laughs) There's no misunderstanding this. Paul is here saying something that flies in the face of what I've heard a lot of people say, that God never gives us more than we can handle. And Paul says, no, 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 we were given, make no mistake, much, much more than we can handle. To the point where, that point of we even dis- despaired of life. Uh, that is, if you think, was that suicidal thoughts and tendencies? I think, sure, why not? Yeah, I think it very well could be. That they got so low, that things got so dark, that in these dark places they thought, why do I even go on? The world would be a better place if I wasn't even here. 
I, I don't, I, sometimes I counsel people and they say, well, I, I, you know, they're just sort of offhanded. I know God says that, you know, he'll never give me more than I can handle. And I always, I, I would never do it because they're in a place of great pain. And I always think, I always say, no, no, he, he, he never, I can't, I don't, that's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible, and I think this is where people get it, is a letter that Paul wrote earlier, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, where it says, nobody's tempted beyond what you can, uh, no temptation has ever come upon you except that which is common to man. In other words, everybody's gone through it. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll always provide a means of escape so that you can stand up under it. And I think that, okay, that's probably where people get that. And they take that and they say, well, I'll never be tempted beyond. That's what the Bible says. You will never be tempted beyond what you can bear. And that is so that nobody can stand before God and say, well, I didn't want to sin, but oh, it was just too much. No, every time you sin, it is a deliberate choice to sin. You see, we want, I would love to say, God, you know, the devil got a victory over me yesterday and I'm so sorry for that. But what I really mean when I say that is I deliberately chose to be disobedient to you fully knowing I just wanted to sin. Because that, now, you, now you're guilty of something that can be forgiven. As long as you're putting the blame on the devil or somebody else, God's like, I would love to forgive you, but you still haven't confessed any sin. Why would God hold you responsible if it's like not your fault? You know? But if you, ha- if you have the ability and God has not allowed you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, then when you come to him in prayer and confess a sin, he's got a real sin he can forgive. See, and he will. And he will. But uh, 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 I think that's where people get that. Anywho, that's temptations. This is suffering. And Paul is saying, look, I've got more than I can handle. And worst of all, and for centuries, let me tell you, this verse, this next verse that I'm about to put up here on the screen, this verse has been like a tuning fork throughout the ages for people who go through dark, dark days. And when I say a tuning fork, when they strike it, it's like something in them resonates. And they go, Paul is speaking from the same place that I am currently in or that I have been. And here we go. We personally had a death sentence within ourselves. Now, there's a lot of inward focus. In the Greek, it's great because it's like, in ourselves, in ourselves, we had a death sentence. So you don't want to miss that. There's all this, the idea that, the point that a death sentence, but a weird death sentence, because it's not coming from outside, it's coming from within. Look, if Paul had been told by the Ephesian powers that be, or by whoever, some uh, uh, Roman consulate or something, if he had been told that you are going to be put to death, we are going to kill you because you're preaching the gospel, I think Paul could have handled that, right? I think he could have gotten through that. He would say, oh, you know, we're, we're being, we've got a death sentence, it's coming from without, but somehow we're going to get through it and we're going to pray that and we're, you know, whatever. But what, what do you do with a death sentence that comes from the deepest parts of who you are? What do you do with that? What do you do with that voice that's on repeat inside of you saying you're no good and there's no hope left. It's over and the world would be better off if you were dead. Paul could at least try to escape an Ephesian mob, go get on a boat and go to some new city and be safe. But what do you do if the voice is inside of you? How do you escape from that? And there are people that have been right there. A death sentence, but one that comes from within. Talk about more than you could bear. And where is God in all this? And just to boil it down, why would a loving God allow me to go through something if it's really more than I can bear? I'll ask it one more time. Why would a loving God allow me to go through something if if he knows that it's more than I can bear? Now, it is easy at this point uh, to uh, back away from that question. Uh, And I I do this a lot. Uh, Well, it's too much. To try to answer that question would be to tap into the mysteries of the problem of evil. And why would a loving God allow me to go through something like that that's too much that I can bear? Uh, 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 It's too much. It's too mysterious. And I understand that. And sometimes it is. Uh, But every now and then, every now and then, we hear somebody like Paul who's been through hell and back. And he is able, without being trite, without any equivocation, he offers up an answer to that question. 
Why would God allow me to go through something like this? Why would God give me something more than I can bear? And uh, a lot of us are tempted, and there is a lot of mystery in this, and, and there's a lot of nuance there, but with no nuance at all. Paul throws nuance out the window and goes, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because sometimes you've got to stand and deliver. And Paul, who's been through hell and back, stands and delivers. And he says, I'll tell you exactly why. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's why we went through it. Because God was on a relentless mission to take those idols from us that we were leaning on and with everything he had to rip them out of our life so that we would learn once and for all that the only place to be is leaning on God and not on ourselves. Is it worth it? And Paul's telling you, look, look at the comfort I've experienced it. Nobody would wish this on anybody. But what I've gone through, yes, I have learned this lesson. And, and you begin to say, all right, if God, if you're willing to do whatever it takes to break me from the deadly cycle of putting myself at the center of the universe and reordering my whole life to the truth that you are at the center of everything and your glory is at the center of, every, center of everything, then it makes perfect sense for me to transfer my trust from anything of myself, not my money, not my ability, not charisma, nothing, and put it completely on you. And if suffering is the only way for me to learn that lesson, then God, you got to do what you got to do. The more loving a God is, the more relentless that God will destroy things that will destroy us. And we have, in God our Father, a loving God. We think love means do no harm when it really means to be willing to do short-term harm for a redemptive purpose. One of my favorite uh, quotes, C.S. Lewis, of course, uh, a grief observed. You, you know this one? He's talking about, what, like, why would a doctor, for example, do harm? A doctor loves you. Why, would we call a doctor evil if he broke your arm to reset it properly? So C.S. Lewis takes this all the way. He, says, he talks about, imagine a surgeon. And this is a surgeon before like they had drugs, like uh, 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 what do they call it? anesthesia and uh, chillaxidrins. But suppose, <laughs> Lewis says, suppose that what you're up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties... Stop, stop, stop. If he did, if he stopped before the operation was complete, then all the pain up to that point would have been useless. And Lewis, he, he's the best. What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they never even been to a dentist? <laughs> Who's better than him? People who say, well, I, I don't understand why a loving God would create pain. Have you ever been to a dentist? The problem of evil is much better expressed when a dude's got a drill in his hand going, this is going to hurt, but in the long run it'll help. What? That's it. The, the end of sermon, right? I mean, that, it won't feel good, but I, and you do too, I have a, a, a need that go, is much deeper than my need to feel good. I need to be good. And... Uh, sometimes the path to being good won't feel good. And though I want the pain to stop, the last thing I would want is to short-circuit what God is doing. Now, like a lot of sermons, this one is so much easier to preach than to live through. <laughs> and I'm not saying I welcome pain. I tend to run from it and avoid it when I can. You should too. Okay? You really Seriously, I mean, you don't need to go looking for pain. I'm ready to get spiritually big faith. Come on, I'm going to get in a wreck. Like, no, no, no. Pain has a way of finding us, right? We don't have to go looking for it. It'll find us. 
And I'm not saying that this is going to be easy, and I'm not saying I welcome it. I don't welcome it for me. I don't welcome it for my family. I pray that it not come. But what I am saying, when it does come, and, and, and I'm not saying, hey, wasn't that a great sermon? Now you know the cause of the problem of evil and suffering, and so now go have big faith. I'm not saying that. But I will say this. Second uh, Corinthians 1.9, at least, isn't it at least when you are in a shipwreck and when your life is falling apart, isn't that at least a piece of driftwood? I mean, isn't that something? To cling to? I'd rather have 2 Corinthians 9.1 than a pile of money. That's all I'm saying. Sometimes I, can't, I can't, sometimes I can't get my head around how as a preacher do I say, God is what we want and God is good. And when I can't do that, sometimes I just go, well, look at the alternatives. So God's good. Uh, all of us will be there at some point, and I want in that moment for you not to run from God and cling to yourself, like we, you know, go back to your idols and look to nurse comfort from someplace that's not God. I want you to say, wait a minute, there may be more to this suffering than meets the eye. And even in death, I mean, isn't that the biggest, and that's the real baddie, you know, death, at the end of all things. Talk about the unknown, and talk about all the anxiety. Don't they all stem from a fear of death? Even in death, look what he says. My trust is not in ourselves, but in God. And he adds this, who raises the dead. Even if the fear, if you dig to the bottom of all these fears and we find at the end death, even then, if I'm connected to my own story, if all, if it's just me and my little gods, then yes, it's true. Death is the end. If that's what I'm connected to, you may, look, you may have a great and glorious story. The Bible never says a human doesn't have any glory. It's just that your glory is short-lived. And if you're at the center of your universe and your glory, if you are like the lead story in the story of the universe, if you were the main character, then it's not, it's not, it's going to be great. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be short. I got tons of glory. Okay. I got this great family. I got a minivan. I got all the glory there is, but I'm going to be gone in the blink of an eye. So I don't want my wagon hitched to the story of Tom. I want to be connected to the one who is eternal, who goes through the grave and comes out on the other side. I want to be a small background bit player in the great story of God. And that glory, the difference is that glory goes on forever and ever and ever. And that's why a year later, a year after this guy wrote that verse, one year later. So, so after 2 Corinthians, say that was like, I don't know, like 56 AD. In 57, you know the book he writes? Romans. And he didn't write Romans until the pain of 2 Corinthians. And you know what he said in Romans at the end? And you can look this up, but I'd rather you just memorize it right here. In Romans 14, he said this. If we live... We live under the Lord. And if we die, we die under the Lord. So whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Chillax, Adrian. Like, that's it, isn't it? That's it. And the guy who wrote that said, pain is how I got there. And if you want to be the guy or the gal who lives that, I can't deny the pain if that's what gets us there. Keep your head up and cling tight to Scripture. He might just be building in you big faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the things that you do to build us, build in us big faith. And we thank you for the spiritual disciplines. We thank you even for suffering. And we thank you, O oh Lord, as we ponder now the Lord's table. We thank you, O oh God, for this gift that week after week we can come and we can receive nourishment and encouragement that you are with us. If the suffering of the cross didn't make you give up on us, and it didn't, 
and nothing will. And we thank you for the reminder, and we thank you that you preserved 2 Corinthians 1.9 for us in its perfection, in its entirety, just the way you wanted it, so that even today we could take courage and give courage to those who are in a dark, dark place today. I pray now that you would allow the truth of these really deep things to sink deep within us that we might have big faith to believe you through all these afflictions we pray in jesus name amen jesus said on the night that he was betrayed he uh paul said that jesus on the night he was betrayed i mean uh, took bread and after he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and he continues by saying in like manner after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood and he said uh, do this in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and that's what we're doing we're proclaiming the great victory that Jesus won for us on Calvary's cross and on that empty tomb on that Easter Sunday morning the ushers know how to prepare the table and they'll um, make a few preparations here and then they'll guide us to the table so that all the things are ready and it can be done in an orderly and reverent way. This would be a great time to reflect in your own heart and to cry out to God to believe the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 or to ask God, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I always think about that. Did Paul not really trust in God? Did he only trust in himself? No, I don't think so up until that point. But I think as every Christian knows, sometimes you know something, but then you like go through something and you know it. You know what I mean? I don't think that's all Paul's saying there. I always knew that to be true. Oh, but then let me tell you, I knew it. But I can't trust myself, but I can trust in him. And maybe today is a day where we as Christians have always known this, but I want you to know it. The ushers will prepare us, and so just uh, follow their lead. They know what to do. Steve, you lead. podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.